My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Spoke. The Departure. The Second Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Violation. The Deception. The Suspicion. Resistance. The Unexpected. Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Beginning. This week, my name is Liz. Yay! Welcome, Liz. Liz. Our second guest host. Why did you decide to join us on our Animorphs Nostalgia podcast? Well, I heard that this book was about dogs, and that is my area of expertise: is loving dogs. Moreover, this book is about creatures that love dogs, and that is what I do too. I've been reading some of the Animorph books selectively, not quite at the same pace or order as the podcast for completely irrelevant reasons. And so I've read, before reading The Android, I read one of a book that comes later. And you know, the thing that it does sometimes where they'll have uh, two sentence summaries of things that happened yeah, yeah. In, in prior books just to catch you up. And so one of the later books I read, there was a two sentence like, oh yeah, and then there was that one time we met these androids who uh, were taking care of all of the dogs on Earth because they reminded them of their former masters. And I burst into tears. <laughs> I was just like, I don't, I don't understand, but that's beautiful. <laughs> yes, you were correct. It was beautiful. <laughs> and so I uh, figured that was one of the uh, earlier books that I was going to have to actually read and perhaps would have some opinions about. I wasn't wrong. So before we get to your opinions, we wanted to give some shout-outs to uh, people out on the internet who have been amazing and receptive to our new podcast. So first, I wanted to thank John, who is the host of AnimorphsPodcast.com, who has graciously listed us there, along with dozens of other Animorphs podcasts. Oh my gosh, Animorphs fandom. There are so many podcasts. It's amazing. I can't wait to listen to all of them. Once I'm no longer worried about just stealing all of your best opinions. <laughs> I'm excited to listen to them when I'm no longer worried about spoilers. Oh, yeah. We'd also like to thank Stacy, who runs WTF Animorphs on the Tumblrs. I am not allowed to look at the Tumblrs because of the spoilers, <laughs> but I hear that she posted about our podcast, and she is the best. So thank you, Stacey. And I also want to thank Dee, who sent us our first piece of fan mail. If anyone else wants to send us fan mail, because it's really fun for us to get fan mail, uh, we're at animorphologycast at gmail.com. Yeah, so so what did we read this week? This week on Animorphology, <laughs> The Android. <laughs> the title that Gray was the most excited about. And by excited, I mean eye-rolly. I was very eye-rolly about the title. I remain eye-rolly about the title. How is it worse than any of the others? No, it's more that Jenny and Ted explained to me in advance that I should expect every science fiction trope. And I said, surely not. <laughs> you doubted us. I doubted, and oh. I was proven very incorrect, because actually, it is every science fiction trope. We're only ten books in. And we're only <laughs> ten books in. How are they going to keep this up? They haven't time traveled yet. Yet. <laughs> but I know it's coming. That has already been spelled right. Uh, I was a little eye about the title. I did not predict the plot, unsurprisingly. So speaking of which... Should we hear what the plot is? Yeah, so I'm going to do my best to summarize the plot of this book in about 60 seconds. So, the start of the book, Jake and Marco sneak into a concert in Dogmorph just for fun, and they run into fellow teen Eric King, who's handing out flyers for the sharing, which is not good, but even weirder, he doesn't smell like anything. So they're like, we got to figure out what's going on with this guy, Tobias and Marco follow him around, and when he gets hit by a bus, 
It short circuits the hologram that is concealing his true identity. And so they know that something weird is going on with him, but they need to get a closer look. And in order to see through this hologram, they decide they need non-human vision. So Axe and Marco go to a meeting of the sharing that's a lakeside barbecue and morph wolf spiders, which we'll get into. They're really gross, <laughs> but they can see through Eric's hologram to reveal that he is a kind of dog-like bipedal android thing. Uh, and Axe is like, I don't know what the heck that is, but it's definitely an android. Then Marco gets eaten by a crow. Marco demorphs from inside the crow's throat and is caught in the middle of the woods by Eric, who, who learns that one of the Andalite bandits is, in fact, the human Marco. But Eric doesn't turn them in right away because it turns out he's a good android, he's also been fighting the Yurks in his own way, and he invites the Animorphs back to his house to learn more. So Eric takes some of the Animorphs uh, into his basement, and they go deep into an underground bunker, which is filled with other androids like Eric and a thousand dogs. And Eric reveals the secret truth behind this underground dog paradise, which is that once upon a time, there was this alien race called the Pemelites, and they were quote-unquote fully evolved, and that meant that they had embraced peace and play and joy and were just like the best people ever. And so they built some robot friends to have uh, called the Chi. Eric is a Chi, which means friend. The Pemelites created the Chi, uh, and we're having a great old time until, of course, as all good things do, their whole civilization came to an end because they were attacked by a bunch of brutal aliens called Howlers. The last of the Chi and the Pemelites escaped to Earth, and even though the Pemelites were dying of some kind of bioweapon, uh, the Chi were able to fuse their souls with the bodies of a certain Earth animal the wolf, which reminded the Chi of what the Pemelites used to look like. And so, thus, dogs were created, and humans and dogs have been best friends ever since. And so, back in the present, the Animorphs are like, cool, we have a android friend who wants to help us fight the Yurks. So, the reason the Chi want to actually... Oh, God. <laughs> the Chi have a bunch of rules about stuff. They don't want to interfere with human affairs, but the, with the Yurks coming, it's the last straw. Because when humans get wiped out, dogs will also get wiped out, because dogs depend on humans. They're symbiotic, and so the Chi have like a real dilemma here. And the Chi are also hardwired to not be able to fight in the tradition of their Pemelite creators. And so Eric the Chi wants to fight back and thinks he should ally with the Animorphs, who are also trying to fight the Yurks. And it turns out that the Animorphs need to pull off a heist to stop the Yurks from using a Pemelite crystal, which is some kind of supercomputer, to drop a computer bomb that will take over all the computers in the world. Conveniently, if they steal the Pemelite crystal, Eric can also reprogram himself to become a Chi that is capable of fighting. And since gravity on the Pemelite homeworld is four times stronger than the gravity of Earth, Chi are very, very strong. So the Animorphs are like, we can heist stuff no problem even though there's super security and it's really dark and there are tripwires, we have bats. So they all morph bats, they go on this crazy heist adventure, and then they realize they can't get out of the heist. Uh, we'll get into it, it's really dumb, they didn't think it through. <laughs> they decide to go into their battle morphs and escape, but they have to fight like 30 hork and there are humans with rifles and stuff. And basically they're gonna totally die until the last second Marco manages to get the Pemelite crystal to Eric, who's waiting outside of the building where the heist was going on. 
And as Marco passes out, Eric murders everybody and saves the Animorphs. Marco's heart is restarted, and he realizes, oh man, I haven't been talking about Marco's emotional journey at all. We can talk about it later. We'll talk about it later. Eric saves them all, and even though he now can fight, he decides that he won't, because unlike people, he can never forget the horrible things he's done. Oh yeah, and they throw <laughs> the Pamelite crystal into the ocean. I finished reading this book while walking here, and I'm flabbergasted by that summary and how much stuff <laughs> happened in the book. <laughs> We've had a little bit of practice during the summary, but yeah, they're really dense. There's so much well, that happens in these not Let's have our takes. Books. Should we go to Liz first? Yes, please. What was your take? I read the sequence where Eric is uh, showing off the underground kennel magical dog paradise mm-hmm. while I was with my roommate's dog in the dog park this afternoon. Oh, totally by coincidence. Perfect. I was a few Wait, chapters before what that. What kind of dog is your roommate's dog? She's a corgi. Her name is Zoe. She's very, very fluffy and wonderful, and she has very short little legs. And so I'm standing in the dog park reading on my tablet as Zoe and all these other dogs are running around back and forth, reading about this paradise of green fields and and multiple sunny suns and thousands of dogs living forever in an underground chamber or something or other. And that's a moment that will stay with me with the sort of... When you have those great moments of what you're when what you're reading matches your your yeah. surroundings and and it's like this is, this is just perfect, but I, uh, I I have less positive feelings about the rest of it. Okay. <laughs> so the Pebbleites are dog people and they have all of the wonderful attributes of dogs. Then they create robots who will be their dogs. Like the robots are cre- the she are created in order to be companions who also do work sometimes. So they were created to be dogs, so the dogs for the dogs. Okay. And then sure. your dogs prime all die. And so secondary dogs then create some more dogs. It's just okay. dogs creating dogs creating dogs. Did Let's, you have a problem with that? Uh, where where do dogs come from? Well, <laughs> it's just like, like where did the original Pemelites come from? Well, it's just sort of cuz dogs are something that is created. Like dogs are not something that exists in nature. Dogs are an invention of humanity. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, one of my many reasons for loving dogs so much is that I feel like dogs are humanity's greatest invention. Mm. And we tapped into the best of what people are in creating dogs. And it, 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 it's just something that I find really like beautiful and powerful, the human-dog relationship going through time and how humans have done all kinds of terrible things and continue to do all kinds of terrible things. But sometimes we create beautiful things like art and music and poetry and dogs. Mm. Dogs never make yeah. it into that list, and they should. <laughs> Dogs are wonderful. But this, this, and this is from us, yeah. Retcons and, dogs. And this is yeah. a story that retcons yeah. dogs while also playing with that. It's not like it's completely irrelevant to the idea of dogs are a creation that reflect the best of their masters. Mm-hmm. It plays with that trope while taking it away from humanity. That the the Pemelites did what humans did in real history of mm. creating the chi to uh, enact a lot of their best attributes. And then that's where that's where the human dogs come from. And uh, the fact that they have a close symbiotic relationship between Earth dogs and humans is just sort of accidental. Like, just who are the humans in the Pemelite and Chi story? Uh, it just doesn't quite work out. I liked where they were going with it. And then I just kind of got mad at the idea that it wasn't that the Chi came to Earth and discovered that humans had created dogs... Like, the, the humans shared certain attributes with the Pemelites, such that resulted in them also creating dogs, like, and that there was a convergent evolution thing going on where you could have humans and their dogs reflecting the best of them and similar sets of species uh, on 
different planets and in different societies. Um, just it all it all came from these stupid penalites. <laughs> and then also they just messed with like the first rule of robotics, but not in a particularly interesting way. And a, what is the difference between an android and a robot anyway? Well, an android is a robot Gracie that looks like a person. Well, I had to have that explained to me last time because I also did not know the difference between an android and a robot. And then Jenny taught me this. Wouldn't, yeah. But wouldn't this be like a candroid because it looks like a dog? <laughs> or like a pemadroid? Pemdroid, yeah. A pemdroid. Well, I was going to say, I feel like an android could look, I would stretch the definition of android to look like any species that we would think of as a person. So you could have like, like if we're an andalite, it would be like an android or something. <laughs> an android. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yes, an android is a robot that specifically is designed to look like a person. That's not a classical definition, though. I mean, were there robots in the classical period? Sorry, not that sense of classical. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what you mean. But, like, I, I mean, I think that, so you have a cyborg that's, like, part organic, part right. robot. You have a robot, which is just all mechanical, and then there's a subset of robots that are androids. I think... There's an implication of artificial intelligence. I'm not sure how much that's required. Hmm. I know that the originator of the robot idea from the Czech play R.U.R. is the robots are actually fully organic, vat-grown people uh, oh. with uh, no individual consciousness that are you know, vat-grown to be slaves, huh. and then stuff happens. Um, and that's where we have the word robot from, from Czech robota or something along oh. those lines. Oh, I took a class in college, <laughs> Literature 155, Robots. <laughs> Did you read this book? No. What a missed opportunity. (laughs) All right. Gray, what was your take? So interestingly, we are reading this book after reading Andalite Chronicles 1, which took us out of the timeline. Right. Which will be out in like two weeks. Which will be out later, but just the recording order happened to work out that way. And after The Secret, so Cassie's last book, with the skunks you remember. <laughs> and what I thought was interesting about this was in a lot of ways it reminded me of some of the earlier books we had read mm. in that there was a goal. They needed a new morph in order to achieve that goal. There was some real bad body horror. There was a big fight scene at the end. And then they have to kind of reset and start over for the next book. And we haven't seen exactly that kind of a plot in a little while. So I was reading this and I thought, oh, this is just like one of the earlier books. And then I realized we're only 10 books in <laughs> somehow, <laughs> which is amazing how much has been accomplished in, well, 11 books, I suppose, with Megamorphs 1. Mm-hmm. It's a crazy book. So much happens. There are so many of these deep thoughts and sort of moral quandaries that have come up in other books, but she's kind of hammering this home a little bit more. And I had made the claim in book two <laughs> that K.A. Applegate was clearly a cat person. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I stand by that. She admires cats, but she clearly loves dogs and their ability to, as Liz says, sort of be the best of humanity or reflect the best of humanity. And she makes that point very clear in this book. She clearly hasn't thought it through the way Liz has, where one of the great things about dogs is that humans created them. She seems willing to assign that to an alien species. I mean, I feel like there, as Liz said, there are a number of things in these books where I just don't think they're thought through very well. (laughs) So, for example, this is the book where we finally get to the Z-Space Mass Ah! thing. 
which I would like to come back to. I was so excited when we got to that. I was like, Gray will finally get to actually read about this sea space thing. Finally. And I am so excited to talk about it. You no longer have to be pre-skeptical. You can just be skeptical. I'm just (laughs) straight up skeptical at this point. (laughs) Kind of like Marco is. Marco's skewed out by it. I am just skeptical. Yeah, I mean, actually, you don't have to more. Right? I mean, it's just some dumb theory. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very dumb theory. So, yeah, Ted, did you have a strong takeaway from this book? Uh, I don't know. I think, like, mixed feelings. So, like, a couple things in revisiting characters. I guess we've had a really good run of strong books where I feel Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. the characters have come through better than ever before. Marco's first book was so good. This one is much less a Marco book than, like, the Animorphs are dealing with a new situation type Mm -hmm. book. And the, the theme of kind of, like... Marco is having these kind of like vague, uh, violent dreams and urges, and then he sees the shocking horror of true violence at the end, and then maybe has a change of heart. It did it, that that was a little like you know any of them could have gone through that or yeah, something. Yeah, not very it Marco specific. It didn't feel very like weighty compared to all of the crazy world building and like the other stuff that was going on. But I mean, I really like the Chi. I like the Pemolite story. I'm really interested to talk about the way that they don't draw a parallel between what they were doing in book nine with the skunks and kind of like what the Pemelites are doing with the humans. It's like really, it's Whoa. like a totally different take on the same kind of situation. Um, Let's go into that more. There were some good individual moments here, like the scene with Marco and his dad that I really loved. Jenny, what was your take? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much there with Ted. It's not my favorite book, but I really like, I think the Chi are cool. Um, I, yeah, liked a lot of the backstory. It raises some interesting moral questions. I was sure that these were, we were going to have some evil killer robots on our hands at the end of the story. Oh. And so I'm completely shocked that it worked out to go wrong, not in the obvious way, but in some other way. I did not have the thought of killer robots, although that is a great point that I hadn't considered. I had the thought of, is Eric going to be another member of this band? How are we going to fit an android, an andalite, five humans, and a bird? In a bar. In a bar. (laughs) It's too many. It's only four humans and a bird. They'll fit. Four humans humans are underage. If we keep adding new characters, we'll never get back to a Tobias book. Oh, no. (laughs) Okay, you're right. No, that can't happen. Buried upset. Wait, did um, not everyone assume that they were, were no, going to have killer that androids? Did not occur to me. Like the androids have had nonviolence hardwired into them, and they're like, we want to not be nonviolent anymore. You know why you hardwire nonviolence into androids? <laughs> also, isn't that just the story that a bunch of like murder crazed androids would right? be cocks to get the animorphs right? to do their dirty work for them? It's like we love dogs. <laughs> Can't you just imagine Spike from Buffy making up this story to try to get the chip out of his head? He would only get through half of it before he'd be like, oh, sod this or whatever. <laughs> right. right, right. But like if you're a murder robot or other murder creature who has been artificially banned from being violent. Of course, you say. You enlist the help of some do-gooders. Some stupid, <laughs> kindly do-gooders. Okay, so there are, there are three things. Um, one is that the fact... I mean, they could have been lying about not turning them into the Yerks. But the fact, like, if they wanted to do evil things, the Yerks would help them out with that. The second thing is that we do see so much of their, like, their personalities. We don't have any reason to believe that they would that they are murder bots who were made to not murder. Like, they were designed by these creatures that, like, were so anti-violence. I think that, like, I don't know, their story's really convincing. And the third thing is that, like, we see so much violence from the Animorphs themselves that I think, 
at like at this point i feel like we've seen the animorphs be so violent and still be like the good guys and like fighting for good and stuff that like the idea that like oh these androids will be violent now well they can still be the good guys they can still work with the animorphs there's so much violence to be done for the right that is humans in the war clearly the perspective that the animorphs have in deciding to work with the androids but it seemed like there were so many narrative cues that it was going to go poorly like the fact that the plan got really uh rail they got really railroaded into the plan Mm. and then it got the timeline pushed up so they couldn't actually think about it further or plan anything um all was just like oh this is going to go poorly and actually i didn't think that they were necessarily had been murderous murder bots who had been neutered Mm. so to to speak (laughs) (laughs) given the dog themes, um, that they'd been neutered, but more like that they didn't have any idea what they were going to be tapping into when they unleashed Uh, their obviously murderous, highly violent impulses. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's why the Maria Chi was trying to stop them because Mm -hmm. she was concerned that they were going to go rogue and uh, just going to have some murder bots on her hands. I don't think she was concerned about that. I mean, I think she was concerned, not that they were going to go rogue and become like, murder bots in some way where they couldn't control their violence because I mean they're they're sentient they have intelligence even right. if they're not even if it's artificial intelligence like I think it was more like even if you do this in a controlled way for good reasons it's still not what we do right it just seemed like sort of a like I also was reading into it some of a like the chi are dogs they're not they're not violent because they've been domesticated and be removing their domestication and turning them into wolves. Hmm. So I wasn't thinking of it as just like a um, a line of code that stops them from physically being able it's to like be violent. their whole personality. Right. right. That's what I was right. expecting it to do. Yeah. You know, I was going to say the thing that I feel like uh, you were saying the anamorphs themselves are like quite violent. Mm-hmm. I think it says a lot about them that sort of collectively they're like, oh yeah, this is a great trade because all we have to do is get this crystal, which is super easy, and then we'll have like a nonstop killing machine. It's like an ultra Rachel <laughs> on our hands, right? And then like Marco is even like, I wrote down his payback is going to be very painful for those filthy slugs. They're just like, yeah. let's like efficiently yeah. win this war as brutally as possible, <laughs> right? So they just they're just like, yeah, let's get out the big guns. Cassie is the one who says she's not sure this is a great idea and is, is a little more reluctant to go with it, which, you know, she is often kind of the voice of peace and being a little more cautious about these kind of things. But I think it's really interesting the way that Applegate draws the parallels between the violence of the Animorphs, the violence of predators, which we've mm-hmm. seen before be kind of a thing that they, they talk mm-hmm. about, right? Predators and prey. And then what happens to this peaceful tribe, this peaceful team. I don't know how to what how to call a group of androids, this peaceful Society? The society. I'm <laughs> peaceful cheese. People? This peaceful people. And then brings them into more violence and what happens to them mm-hmm. as a result of that. And I think they Applegate really plays with that in super interesting ways. So for example, when when they morph the spider for the first time and Marco gives in to the carnivorous impulses of a wolf spider and is very kind of attacking this, wants to attack this beetle, mm-hmm. Axe says to him, he's going to attack a cockroach. And Axe says, sometimes humans worry me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's, you know, that's kind of an interesting thing to say. And then when the Chi told us their backstory, I thought, I think this is where, what they're going with. Like, humans can be this murderously violent individuals and still be able to forget enough of the violence to kind of keep up the fight in the Animorphs case or to 
go back to feeling like themselves when they're no longer spiders, when they're no longer in the midst of this battle. And that the chi are unable to do that because of the length of their memories. It's Mm -hmm. such an interesting way to play with that idea. And I, I found it really moving. Eric's reaction to, at the end, as Ted described earlier, he, in 10 seconds, kills all of these people in Hork Bajir. I mean, he is an unstoppable killing machine, which is what the Animorphs wanted. But he's also enough of a person to recognize how horrible that is. Yeah, and the way the books are written makes us kind of complicit in the violence that the Animorphs perpetrates in the mm-hmm. same way. Because when a fight scene is described, you know, like it's a YA book, it doesn't get that graphic, but it says pretty like point blank when they're like cutting people's arms off and when Marco's guts are getting ripped out. I'm thinking about the really violent battle at the end of book seven where mm-hmm. Rachel's like, I, yeah. ca- I can't really remember it, but the things that I do remember are really horrifying. Like, imagine if you were reading it and it was just like a play-by-play, moment-by-moment narration of the Animorphs ruthlessly slaughtering hork after hork just so that the body count is like really, really explicit in the text and how hard it would be to sympathize with these characters who are doing that over and over again. And we're like kind of rooting for them to kind of like be these child soldiers doing these horrible, horrible things because the stories are fun yeah. and all of that. But that is the experience that, that Eric has, right? Mm-hmm. Living every moment forever. Right. And it's actually a little bit what we talked about, I think, last time with the Hork-Bajir, that the Animorphs have slaughtered Hork-Bajir by the dozens, if not, well, by the dozens at this point. It's only been 10 books. Their body counts around maybe two or three dozen Hork-Bajir. I refuse to do a body count of the Hork-Bajir in this book. But as we talked about before, the Hork-Bajir are innocent. Yeah. They are not violent individuals. They are being controlled by Yerks. And so they're essentially slaughtering, you know, innocent bystanders in this war between them and an enemy that they can't otherwise reach. Yeah. Involuntary combatants? I don't even know if that's a category. And so it makes sense to me that Eric would have this reaction. Because I think he knows that too. And it's not just that he's reading the play-by-play. It's he is seeing it, right, over and over and over. It'd be like watching the movie of that on repeat forever. That does bring up the question of how exactly do android memories work? Sure. I'm just just wondering, like, what exactly does that encoding of, what does the reliving it mean yeah. for an android? Like, is it, what is android cognition like? Mm-hmm. But where it's, it's obviously tempting to just consider it to be like a form of PTSD flashback. Like, the, actually, so, actually yeah. the, the reliving it idea that we have from our general societal understanding of PTSD, right. meaning that it right. is, like, mm-hmm. feeling yeah. in that moment again. But what, what does that actually mean for an android? Well, it, it could also just be, like, if they're this dog-like species created it, of course you'd want to remember everything that ever happened because everything is so great all the time, oh, right? It's like another blind true. spot of the way they might have been programmed. Like, they are not they don't have enough control to say, like, oh, I'm just going to delete that part of the tape, right? And they, like something who would design an android that remembers everything? That stores all of its data forever in like easy to access storage. That <laughs> like this is this is really an inefficient data system. I do want to know what kind of data storage <laughs> they have because that's pretty amazing. Um, and it is also an interesting question: if they have the Pemolite crystal, could he edit his own memories? And to what extent would that make him not feel like he's like a person with like fully integrated mind anymore? I hope hmm. they find a way to do that. Poor Eric. Can I read the bit about? when Marco's talking about the PTSD stuff, basically. See, win or lose, right or wrong, the memory of violence sits inside your head. It sits there like some lump you can't quite swallow. It sits there, a black hole that darkens hope and eats away at everyday happiness like a cancer. 
It's the shadow you take into your own heart and try to live with. She has some feelings about PTSD. Mm. I mean, I guess that's not specifically PTSD. She has some feelings about the violence of war. And it's also specifically PTSD from the perspective of one who has uh, inflicted violence. Yeah, yeah. From the segments of the series that I've read so far, I'm not really remembering big moments of them having PTSD-type experiences of their own injuries. I'm sure it comes Mm -hmm. up. I think it's all blended together, because usually they're inflicting violence at the same time that they're receiving it. Yeah, and you stopped right before the next sentence, which is a classic Animorphs moment, where Marcos then said, thanks, I shrugged. Right? Every time these really weighty issues are presented, they're not presented, like, in a moralizing way. They're presented in, like, a, well, this is kind of my take on it in this moment, but I feel conflicted, and now I just have to move on. I really love that, I mean, we've talked about how there's some really great things about that, and I particularly love, like, that this is aimed at kids who probably haven't had a lot of thought like they haven't thought about these things a lot yet and this is sort of just like giving them the beginnings of these ideas like it definitely did for me mm-hmm. like this was my first exposure to like this kind of war as hell to what extent is violence justified all that stuff and it, it is kind of interesting that they don't grapple with that yet again they're kind of opportunistically like okay cool so we can get this really strong robot to help us yeah. right <laughs> they don't see the pemelites versus the howlers and this whole thing is like a parable for what they're going through they're not that oh, self-aware right. And I wanted to get back to what you were saying, Gray, about the way this kind of reflects what they've been through before. So I thought Cassie and Tobias's reactions were really interesting. One of the things that Cassie learned in the, the last book, The Secret, was kind of she was wrestling with her naive view of nature and realizing that predators exist and, you know, you have to kill to survive and all this kind of stuff. And yet her view here is kind of like, well, there's some sanctity that comes from being able to say no she has ever killed anyone. That should be something that we can, we should want to preserve, even though she's just kind of come to this realization that in nature, that's not kind of how nature works. And yet Tobias, in the last book, even though he ate one of the skunk kits, this time around, he's like, well, wouldn't it be nice if it wasn't the law of nature, right? Or it wasn't the law of the jungle? Wouldn't it be nice if humans could face the universe and say that they don't kill anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, and so even though he's the closest to that predator versus prey thing, he's still kind of dreaming of something different. That's actually a really interesting parallel with the last book because he and Cassie had that conflict. We talked really briefly about how sometimes these conflicts come up between them and we just sort of never see them being resolved. And actually we do get a moment of resolution in this where there are the opossum cubs Uh and um, she, Cassie looks up at Tobias and says, Tobias is a hawk. He has a right to be a hawk. Then she looks up at him and smiles. Then um, she looks down at the cubs Hugs, kits, whatever they I are. Don't know. Um, baby <laughs> the baby. The baby opossums. And uh, she says, Of course, they are awfully cute. And Tobias says, Oh man, Tobias groaned. Okay, okay, this litter is off limits. Happy now? <laughs> You're a sweetheart, Tobias, Cassie said. But it was like a really, really sweet little really callback. Nice yeah. And they've obviously resolved that conflict. Mostly. Yeah, it makes sense to me that Tobias is like wistful about the idea of non non-violence in this mm-hmm. way because he is someone who's able to live with the two halves of himself really well mm-hmm. it was interesting this idea like we can say no chi has ever killed anyone we want to be able to say 10,000 years from now no chi has ever killed anyone it reminded me of an idea that I find really pernicious annoying in modern movies mostly if 
feel like you see this in X-Men where like I feel like the the men are like conspiring to keep Mystique from like losing her murder cherry and like this thing where like I'm sorry, but... <laughs> <laughs> there's one of the X-Men movies they're like really worried that like Mystique will kill for the first time and that will make her a killer forever okay but you said but, murder cherry yeah they don't want her to pop her murder cherry but... um, <laughs> Two things. One, episode title. And two, it is an amazing phrase. It's very applicable. It is definitely, they're like, this young girl must stay innocent. She can't kill this person who completely 100,000% deserves it and will never receive justice in any other way. I I hate everything about this. (laughs) Anyway, I feel like there's often the idea that, like, killing the brutal enemy that you have spent the entire movie trying to defeat is the worst thing that can happen, even if that enemy is, say, a Nazi who definitely needs to die and won't be killed in any other way. And this, it was a little bit echoed here, this idea that, like, innocence is to be prized in a vacuum, almost. Like, I feel like you can also lose your innocence by not standing up against violence, even if standing up against violence is in itself violent. Like, this idea that we just want to be able to say we're pure is, like, a little bit disingenuous when you're, like, you have a lot of power and you're on this planet where you could do something. I think that's kind of Eric's take as why he wants to change his programming, right? Mm -hmm. The rest of the Chi are, like, if the dogs die out, it's it's better to go nobly to, you know, extinction than it is to lose our purity. Mm -hmm. Where Eric's saying, no, it's worth fighting for the memory of the Pemelines. Yeah. So that ties in nicely to Asimov's Rules of Robotics, ah. mm. uh, which, as I hope we all know, the first rule of robotics is... A <laughs> Don't ro- talk about robotics. <laughs> <laughs> um, well played. A robot may not injure a human being or, through inaction, allow a human being to come to harm. And that is very interesting that the Chi don't have the second clause of the first rule built into their programming, yeah. it seems. Yeah. It's a good twist. All they have is they may not injure a human or any being in, in, in their specific case. They also don't have the uh, second or third or zeroth right. laws of robotics that made everything Asimov was able to then play with in terms of what oh. these laws mean. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I'd like to asterisk that and say that there's kind of a loophole where you are allowed to imprison a sentient being forever in a virtual <laughs> world of your own creation. Eric mm. put a yerk in his head. Right. Definitely. Just saying mm. that's like an exception. They don't consider that to be violence. But those are kind of troubling. Okay, I don't know that much about the history of the, you know, the canon around the rules of robotics. <laughs> Better word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that much about, yeah. That is definitely sort of positing robots as subservient in a really troubling way and is sort of a fear-based rule i don't know that it needs to apply to the chi who seem to be very much people in their own right right well i was gonna say cassie kind of has this moment of like human superiority again when they're talking about like the the weightiness of this decision she's like well you know what if it you know gets out that the animorphs made the chi killers (laughs) right like, Eric totally has agency here, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. He's the one who wants it to happen. It's not like, you know, it's kind of a weird place for her to go. Right, I think what's interesting to me is situating this in the history of Asimovian robot literature, mm-hmm. where the entire point of a lot of the Asimov robot stories and things inspired by it are showing how the rules don't work or ways mm-hmm. in which there are loopholes or, or how they uh, conflict with each other. Like, that, it's never... 
here are the rules. Now we can imagine a society where there are there are uh, like fully conscious AI creatures and humans and everything goes great thanks to these rules. Isn't this wonderful? Mm-hmm. And so Applegate, by paring it down to just the first clause of the first rule, gives us another <laughs> scenario uh, that is a bit different than, than some of the other Asimovian robot rule scenarios, but very much within this tradition uh, yeah. of, your, of your non-violent robot android creatures. Without allowing the cheat to fully think through some of the opportunities that they have in their role as not being able to commit direct violence, but seeming to have no prohibition on indirect violence or extreme cruelty, as in the case of the imprisoned Yerk in in his head. I was also uncomfortable with, like, the the kind of, like, sanctity of being nonviolent thing, Mm because I think the the ways that human society justifies violence can be, like, pretty horrifying and hard to deal with, and it's, like, a really complicated thing. But I, I feel like... They don't give Eric the out that we tend to give ourselves in society, which is that if you're part of a community that kind of agrees that this is what you have what you have to do, and it's kind of for the good of all, that he can be forgiven for what he's done. And they don't really offer him forgiveness. They, they're kind of like, well, everyone's wrestling with this idea on their own um, at the end. It's, it's tough, because I think there's an option there that, that they don't take. On the other hand, Eric also, it's not that he feels regret for what he did. It doesn't seem like it's that he feels regret or that he thinks that he shouldn't have hurt these individuals or is thinking about them as people that he hurt. It's just that he can't live with the memories of their goriness um, and the vision of it. And maybe maybe there's an implication that there's guilt involved in that and a feeling that he shouldn't do it again. But Certainly what he says is just, I don't want to do it again because I don't want more of these memories cluttering up my database. And, well, and then Cassie says he lost his soul, mm-hmm. right? That's, just, that's like, Cassie's problem. Very, very judgmental. <laughs> I feel like we've seen the books grapple a little bit indirectly with this idea of like, yeah, we need to fight the war. We need to do what we need to do to fight the war. But we also need to keep ourselves and each other sane. And maybe that means going forward with this plan if it'll help keep Marco's dad safe because we need him to be okay. We need to like not maybe directly attack Tom because we need Jake to be okay. And maybe this is like, he wouldn't be okay with this fight. And that's like a, if he cannot be okay in this fight, like he can't fight the fight. It's not going to work. Yeah. I think the idea of absolution is really interesting because they talk about the horror of this moment and as has often been the case, don't actually grapple with it. So something bad happened. They had all of these fatalities. And Eric is sobbing. He's a robot sitting in the corner and sobbing. And Cassie says he he saved our lives and lost his own soul. And Marco goes over to him and he wants to thank him. I want to tell him he'd done what was right. He'd beaten the bad guys, saved the good guys. But because it's Marco, he can't say that. He's not mm-hmm. able to be vulnerable in that way. So instead he says, you okay, ma'am? Ugh. Um, and, and then he observes. He looks at me. Eric looked at him with holographic human eyes. Maybe he had to choose to make them cry. Maybe he had to choose to give them that empty, hollow look. I don't know what the connection is between the android Chi and his projected human body, but his expression answered my question. No, Eric was not okay. And I think what's interesting then is that he goes into this idea of the memory of violence that sits in your brain and that humans can kind of try and forget that. They're covered by scar tissue, he says, but that Eric doesn't have that same option. 
But what I thought was interesting about that was the maybe he was choosing to cry. That mm-hmm. Marco can't really understand, I think as we can't, how Eric is processing this intense violence. And what I thought of during the whole description of the Chi was that there's actually nothing robotic about them that isn't just kind of plot convenient. So like having the year tied up with wires in his mm-hmm. robot brain, that's very convenient. That he can reprogram himself with this computer thing, very convenient. Yeah. But in terms of being just something that's a little outside of the human norms, it seemed to me that the Chi were just another kind of alien that yeah. practiced nonviolence. And if you, and if I think about them as just another kind of alien and allows me to ignore the sort of robotics <laughs> idea, then instead what you see is this being in pain and uh, the Animorphs unable to address that. Yeah. They don't, I mean, no one puts a hand on his shoulder. Maybe they did before Marco woke up. I don't know, but he just walks away. And yeah. I think I think there's an implication that they're scared of him or they're like, so they're also horrified. Like, um, mm-hmm. Rachel is shaken and Marco starts to really, it starts to sink in when he sees that Rachel's on the verge of tears, right? So, you know, it's not like they're totally being cold-hearted, but no, no, and um, I, and, and they're I definitely think, not being their best selves. Exactly. And there's no, as you were saying, I mean, there's no sense of him going back to the rest of the chi and saying to Maria, you were right, we, we can't have this, this isn't who we are. And allowing her to absolve him of it a little bit. Oh, he's going to be the only one who went through this. He's alone. Yeah. And we don't... We've seen a few other examples of things like this happening. And this one was just... I found it particularly hard. And I think part of it was the comparison between Eric. And then he walks away back to his lonely existence where it's unclear what will happen to him. And the next scene we get is the dogs at the very end playing frisbee on the beach. And having that difference between this sort of black hole of pain in Eric's head in comparison to the lightheartedness that the Pemelites were sort of known for and what he's become was such a harsh contrast for me. It broke my heart a little bit for Eric. It's a sad book. Yeah. As you were talking, it also occurred to me that it's a very thin presentation of dog character. <laughs> um, like the only attributes of dogs that really are relevant to the Pemelites and the cheese characterization is playfulness mm-hmm. and happiness. But earlier in the day before going to the dog park with Zoe, I was sitting and reading and not paying attention to Zoe and her person is out of town right now. And so she's been very sad and she was just lying on the floor dejected, just (laughs) absolute sadness, which is why I decided to take Uh her to the dog park. I was like, Oh, okay. I could read and walk at the same time because her person wasn't here. And the depression that dogs feel is just as pure as the happiness that they feel. And we saw Jake feel that in book one. That's right. Absolutely. And it's surprising, actually, now that it occurs to me, that the, we don't see the chi experiencing that kind of dejection of, of their dogs, people. Their other half in this, in this equation are, are not present. But also, some other major attributes of dog character are a love, a love of working uh, mm-hmm. and extreme loyalty. And I guess you could say that the chi are extremely loyal to the memory of the Pemelites. Mm-hmm. We certainly don't see them loving work. Uh, and having a job to do. It's all, it's all a very 
At the beginning, Gray, you said that you had previously thought Applegate was a cat person, and now you're wondering dog person. I'm actually thinking, I don't think she's a dog person. She doesn't see that. You know, the another um, attribute of dogs is their protectiveness mm-hmm. and sort of guarding ability, and you don't see any of that. There's no sense that the Pamelites are trying to guard the earth from the Yerks. Mm-hmm. I mean, any infiltration they've done has been minor to say the least so I think that you're right that there's there's some major qualities missing from this characterization of the dog I also wonder how much the chi are supposed to be just like dogs and how much because like did the pemelites make the chi to be exactly like uh, themselves? yeah that's a good point right. like right. I don't know to right. what extent they're I guess when you make AI you make it usually to be like you because what other models and do and Eric have, isn't but... necessarily playful right? no no right. he's no. not supposed to yeah. be like a dog and we also don't know how much of, like, some of those characteristics are also true of wolves. So right. we don't know how much, like, the dogs got some stuff from the Pemelites, but they also... Well, it goes back to what I was saying before, being unclear about where did dog attributes come from mm-hmm. then. Yeah. then. Mm-hmm. We could perhaps imagine that the Pemelites were the most dog-like, and in creating the chi, they reflected not their playfulness, but they reflected some of their seriousness mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. They were reflecting an attribute of themselves right. the same way humans did when we created dogs, and then the... She reflected back a different part of the Pemelites in their creation of dogs on Earth. Right. And, well, oh, and there's just that bit in the beginning. I think this kind of supports your, you don't get the full range of doggishness, right? When Marco becomes a dog, he's like totally overtaken by the happiness of it. There's the bit where he's like, I barked for no reason. I did a little dance. And I'm like, <laughs> this is the cutest dog. And he almost gets hit by a car. These but books, he care. You know, like, whatever, it's fine. But then when the, um, the girl says, the hippie girl says that Jake is a cuter dog. Instead of Marco going into, oh no, how could she say that? I'm such a sad dog now. He's like, snaps back to Marco. Right? You can see that going in a different direction. I do think actually the Pemalite thing is really interesting because it's not, in some ways it's a mirror of the human-dog relationship because it's not humans having created dogs and imbued them with their best impulses, but it's rather dogs having, having created human-like beings yeah who then created dogs yeah yeah (laughs) it's the second stage where it gets a little off but and then imbued them with these characteristics and maybe it's not the best of them it's just a compliment that's a clearer way of saying what i was trying to say yeah to creating creating yeah yeah there's a clear way of saying saying the the companion relationship Mm -hmm. is being created here in several degrees then they have to keep the dogs on earth alive by keeping the humans alive yeah (laughs) so we mentioned Marco not being able to talk to Eric as he might have, not being able to say to Eric what maybe Eric needed to hear. Do we want to talk a little about Marco's toxic masculinity, which is on full display in this book? Yes, please. Let's do that. Let's do that thing. I mean, starting with this thing where he's like, I'm going to be a cute dog and then I can pick up girls. In dog form, somehow. I don't know how that's going to work. He just wants the pretty girls to pet him. Men classically have always had this belief that <laughs> dogs will allow them to pick up girls. But usually they aren't the dog. <laughs> but they don't know is that girls are only interested in the dog, so... Well, so Marco actually has a much better plan. Yeah. Uh, there is also the bit where guys and girls should not be in combat oh, together. Oh my god. That was interesting. It's much harder for a guy to be a coward when some girl is watching. <laughs> especially when she's all gung-ho. 
That's not how toxic masculinity works. No. <laughs> I find that also because he's like his reason. His reason is a good reason for them to be in battle together. <laughs> I know. Even on, even if you take that at face value, yeah. Yes, you should put them in combat together. But also, maybe if you just got rid of your toxic masculinity, it was it wouldn't even be an issue, and you could just be in combat with other people. Yeah, I was real mad about that whole section. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's representing like the author's viewpoint right. but i think it is a good characteristic of marco but you know i don't yeah. particularly like this kid no. so <laughs> or how about where he wants to peep on some girl named oh. you know teenager king in uh, her house when he's looking for eric cassie won't let him yeah right because thank god cassie good job there. cassie and the thing where he's in dogmorph he's like a girl i was sure she was a girl but was she a cute girl? <laughs> like, come on, Marco, you can just be pet by the girl. It doesn't actually matter. Just enjoy your head scratches. Yeah. That's all you're getting for a while. Yeah. So. Though I want to know, do girls love Iris Setters? Yes. Yes. Sure. Two out of, two out of three girls <laughs> agree. Okay. <laughs> I, I, am, I am perhaps slightly less of a like dog enthusiast than these other two girls. I'm a cat <laughs> person, but Irish sweaters are beautiful. So okay. beautiful, that hair. Yeah, I mean, I can go on board with that. Yeah. I would yeah. not date Marco. I do like his voice. Will I anyone, enjoy the humor. Will anyone ever call him gorgeous? <laughs> the bit with his haircut is hilarious. The recurring oh. haircut jokes are amazing. Very good. Very funny. I liked because I'm 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 still shipping this. Um, I liked it where Axe so Axe turned his head toward me, making eye contact with his main eyes. Marco, something has happened to your hair. I believe it has become shorter. Are you suffering from some sort of illness? <laughs> that doesn't. I yelled as the others all broke up giggling. It'll grow out, all right. It'll grow it's out. It's so sweet. He can take the teasing from everyone except not- for Axe because it hurts him the most. <laughs> yes, and then, this is absolutely and then my Axe theory. Realizes that Marco has been offended, and so he tries to laugh at his joke about nuclear power before he has to seriously explain that that's not how, nuclear power isn't strong enough. It's like such a misconnection. It's adorable. They'll get together one day. That's all right. They get to turn into spiders together, which is obviously the best kind of date. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's Gray's favorite kind of date. Oh, yeah, that's Another shout-out to Tumblr. We're here for your ships. Jenny, did you see that we finally got an answer to how tall Jake was? Okay, this we is did a not. We did not get an answer. We have. So, this is so confusing. Five feet tall is slightly shorter than Jake, who is, as we know, a big guy. <laughs> yeah. So okay, a, he was maybe five feet tall, but he managed to look taller. A slightly shorter version of Jake, strong and confident looking. Okay, yeah. So they are thirteen, but like five feet is really short. How like how how tall is Jake? Jake is five foot two. So that that's why Eric is slightly shorter, but he's five foot two and he's he's quite stocky, which is why he could play on the football team. Okay, and I mean he does look bigger than he is, right. as we've learned. Lots of confidence, carries himself very tall. Five How foot- tall is Rachel, who is very tall. Well, they're thirteen, foot- so she could be like five foot seven because she's a girl and they're thirteen. Yeah. Right. I mean, she's probably like five five nine, five ten. Yeah, Rachel's five eleven. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel also has in the in the second book in a row. Uh, Rachel has too many teeth. Endless yeah. teeth. <laughs> so Rachel has like 500 teeth. <laughs> and she... Razors for fingers. <laughs> Seven tails. But also she always looks perfect. I really enjoyed that. Perfect. Yes. Makeup, Perfectly like a Tolkien elf. 
Yeah. Marco yes. compares a girl to an elf. <laughs> Terrible elf maidens in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, beautiful and dangerous. You know, yes, he does also great. call Axe's human morph surprisingly pretty for a boy. Mm-hmm. That's true. He's yes. coming around. That is a recurring thing. That's a recurring thing. Previously, he had said, Cassie thinks Axe's human morph is cute, but I don't see that or something like <laughs> well, that. Well, now, he's a pretty boy. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, but, like, I refuse to believe Jake is, like, 5'2". That is three inches shorter than me. They're 13! That's a tall 13-year-old! Okay, that's not, that's not a tall 13-year-old. Well, between books 10 and 11, he definitely has a growth spurt, so we can go back to whatever your Jake Ed Cannon was. Okay, all right. Can we talk about Z-Space? I'm oh so excited. Oh my god, please, can we talk about Z-Space? <clears throat> Would you like um, someone else to read what we've learned about Z-Space? Yes, I really would. When you morph something smaller than yourself... Your body mass must go somewhere. So, it goes into zero space. Zero space is the space that ships travel through when they are going faster than light. It's not very likely to happen, but sometimes a ship traveling in Z-space will intersect with a temporarily parked mass. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then what happens if it interacts <laughs> with a temporarily parked mass? Oh, uh, you get disintegrated, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> the ship is... Shielding systems would disintegrate the mass. Don't worry, the ship's not going to crash into your mass. It's, no, it's just fine. that the shielding yeah. is going to disintegrate. But it's very low odds. Millions uh, to one. Millions yeah. to one. It could happen. Millions to one odds. And then it's described <laughs> throughout the rest as balloons of mass <laughs> hanging out in Z space. So, no. first of all, I would like us to all imagine. The no, difference in mass don't make us do it. between listen, if Kay Applegate can get this kind of body horror in this book. <laughs> yeah, you're allowed. You can do it. Okay. Okay. Go forth. There's a let's call him five foot two. We just established that Jake is five foot two and Marco is short. No, I'm talking about Jake here. Oh, okay. We're, we're talking gonna go, about we're Jake. We're gonna go with Jake. Okay. Okay. Because right. he, he morphs a fly, and I feel that is an that is the biggest way. difference. Yeah. So we've got a five foot two, 13 year old boy who morphs into a fly. So 99.999% of his mass is no longer needed. Flies are quite small. And he's quite a large five foot two, 13 year old boy, <laughs> as we've established. But so he's not some big tough guy or anything. No. No. But he could be on the football team. So somewhere in Z space, a made up realm of the space time continuum. Uh, it's anti reality. I'm pretty right? sure it's real. <laughs> it is anti reality. And let us explain why it is anti reality because somewhere in there, there's 99.999% of a 13 year old boy just floating in a bag of goo. Is it shaped like him? Is it just the atoms? Is it any sort of form? Where is his brain? Is his brain in Z space and it's controlling the fly? I know you guys have talked about this before, but I'm very upset about it because it doesn't make any goddamn sense. Yeah, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that seems fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're bags of goo floating in Z-Space, or maybe they're people, but like part of their mass is out there. And then, hey, um, just while we're, you know, talking about this, there's a bag of, big bag of Jake floating in Z-Space, and it's mm-hmm. possible some sta- sh- spaceship is somehow going to go through anti-reality and smash into him. Fine, let's take that as red. But <laughs> what we haven't discovered in this is uh, where the mass comes from if you morph a bigger animal. That's a good question. Is there a bag of elephant? (laughs) (laughs) A 
And then when she morphs into an elephant, she happens to find that bag of what, goo that yeah, turns her into an elephant. Yeah, what if there's like a law elephant? of conservation of Z-space mass? Oh, so no. that when you morph something bigger, you're stealing it from somewhere else. Oh, no. And if everybody morphed elephants all at once, you'd run out of mass in Z-space. Or you'd steal it from, I don't know, spaceships that are also going through Z-space at the time? Whoa. None of it makes sense. Yeah, so are you borrowing other people? Is it like a bank? Like, <laughs> like you morph, and so your mass goes into Z-space, and then other people use it while you're in morph, and then you get it back? Like maybe interest? you Maybe you suck the mass out of Z-space in the abstract and create little, like, mini black holes so they could, like, throw off the navigation of Whoa. ships, you know, because there's, like, a little pocket of nothing. Oh, so there's, like, negative amounts of mass there because you took some of it to be an elephant. Right. Okay. Oh, yeah, no, that makes sense. So they couldn't, the ships couldn't, in anti-reality Z-space, crash into your negative mass because that's acting like a black hole and kind of you right. go around it. The what if you get, it gets, like, sucked yeah, into what the if black you get hole sucked into and, like, it. explodes out of you into the It would be like the, the Animorphs coming out of the taxon in Book 7. Yeah. Or, or like Marco, Marco coming, coming out, out of the, the crow. crow. <laughs> okay, I just have, I have a note in my notes here. I was like, Marco's like worried about being a spider and there's a fly. And I'm like, oh, gross. What would happen if someone in spider morph ate someone in fly morph? And they would both have to like demorph and so forth. <gasps> would we, they like merge? But then we immediately get that exact scenario where he comes. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I, I must have written it down. I must have written it down. So... Marco gets swallowed by a crow, is being digested, feels like feels like he's going to die, remembers his mother calling him cute as he's dying. And then I had burst through the throat of the crow. Horrifying. Also, while this is happening, can you just imagine, you know, you are a controller going to a barbecue out in the sharing. You know, you, Mr. 3 probably has you doing stuff that you don't want to do a lot of the time. Any kind of security detail, you're probably killing other other controllers to keep them in line, right? But for this one day, you're going to go out to a lake and, like, have some barbecue, try and recruit some people to the sharing, maybe find, you know, like, you're hanging out with the Matcom execs and all this kind of stuff. And then while you're doing that, suddenly... There's like a horrifying scream that fills your head that comes out of nowhere. <laughs> and everybody else looks around and is like, oh my God, oh my God, the Andalite bandits are here. I know that that's thought speak, but oh, our plan's going wrong. What's happening? Did I, did I just eat something that's going to come bursting out from inside <laughs> right, of me? Because they were probably right? in the yurt pool in the yurks, seven. The yurks yeah. can't have any like food situation without the animals <laughs> showing up and delivering another blow in their like psychological war. Wow. I including... The description of what Marco looks like as he is morphing from a spider into a human and falling out of the sky, having burst from the now corpse of a crow. Mm -hmm. He is crow. falling through the air, <laughs> a vile mix of crippled spider and emerging human, the size of a baseball and getting <laughs> bigger. <laughs> I know that we often stop to say, what does that look like? But what does that look like? He is covered in dead crow. Man, I feel so bad for you guys who feel the need to, or have the ability to picture things <laughs> as you're going along. This doesn't, this doesn't bother me at all. It's just words. What about, what about I the part? kind of feel like. What about the part where he turned into a spider? And, you know, because to get spider eyes, he's desperately trying to keep his eyes closed so he doesn't have to watch eyes <laughs> turn into a spider. Oh. And then his eyes are forced open because spiders don't have eyelids. And then even more eyes are erupting out of his head like zits. Eyes that doesn't were, do anything for you, Liz. Eyes were erupting out of my head like zits. Um, Worst non-Texan thing so far. <laughs> Horrifying. I did flag a tiny bit later on. He says, 
almost exactly, I have no mouth, but I must scream. Like, <laughs> she is very much aware of the history of classic sci-fi going on here. Uh. Ted, what does it sound like when legs explode from someone's chest? Oh, was this time, was it Sproot? <laughs> it was, in fact, Sproot. With fly legs, it's Sproot. Right. With spider legs, it's Sproot. You can make a chart. Legs and pedipalps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My name is Sproot. <laughs> These morphs are so gross. Every time I know I say that, this was not as bad as the fly. The fly has been the worst so far, but this one was really bad. And it happened twice, and it was bad <laughs> both times. I didn't enjoy any of it. I don't like it. I wonder if Axe had a like an easier time turning into the spider, because he already has eyes that don't have eyelids. And he already has four eyes, so he only had to get four new eyes. So maybe his stock eyes just like shrank down and like were on his head. Um, Marco probably knows. He was looking at it through right. his eyes. Well, I think Marco has it. something going on. It's not really super examined in this book, but we talked a little bit before about how he's, when he becomes the spider, he just gives in to the carnivorousness, and he kind mm-hmm. of likes feeling strong. He's going to go eat this beetle or whatever. And then he's like, ha, 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 oops. That, that was weird. <laughs> uh, but then earlier, he cause he does the same thing where he like loses himself to the dog's happiness, right? So he's like, he seems very unguarded in this book and like we see him twice kind of like give in to the animal instincts and i was kind of trying to figure out like what's going on with marco but with the dog's happiness at least he talks about how with human happiness there's always this little voice in the back of your head going don't be too happy something bad could still happen yeah is that a thing everyone experiences i think it's marco okay (laughs) right so i think it's it's interesting that he's like particularly unprepared for this like feeling of happiness or this feeling of strength that he can get kind of like carried away by it. I thought it was interesting. So we had that thing in the earlier book where Cassie describes Tobias as like, Tobias is never happy, period. Uh, He thinks that if he's ever happy, someone's going to come and take his happiness away. And we were like, actually, that doesn't sound like Tobias at all. That sounds like Marco. Gray is is nodding at me. Yeah, that is Marco here. The king, in fact, says, you know, humans, projecting his experience onto everyone are never completely happy because they think something's going to go wrong. Human happiness always has this little voice in the back of your mind going, don't be too happy, keep your guard up, something bad could still happen. Poor Marco. Poor Marco, but also correct. And a nice (laughs) reflection of the shortcomings of the Pemelites, whose complete disregard for guarding defense, the possibility possibility of of badness, ensured the destruction of their entire species. On the other hand, they had... Potentially millions of years of peace and prosperity. <laughs> Tough call. <Right. laughs> might yeah. be worth it. I do feel like Marco is like a little bit less stable, less canny in this book than he has been in like when we've been viewing him externally. And I don't know how much of it is like the influence of point of view. Like we often get the most like vulnerable and like affecting episodes when we're in that person's head, just because you know you put those in that book. Uh, and how much of it's like, this is kind of what he's like all the time. Like how Rachel is actually like much less like strong and fierce than she projects. And Margot doesn't see that at all. But Some as, of the other characters do. But. but as we talked about at the beginning, this isn't really a Margot book in the same yeah. way as the first Margot book was. There's a lot less of his emotional journey, but there is some. Well, we get, we haven't really talked at all yet. We get that one moment. Yeah, the moment with his dad. The moment with his dad is great. And so the whole book five was all about how he's almost ready to quit the Animorphs because of how if he died, it would destroy his dad. And then his dad's like finally ready to move on from the supposed death of his mom. But now Marco has learned that his mom is still alive and maybe she was a controller for a really long time in their relationship. 
and in this book we find out she was and it is heartbreaking so like marco they're having a good time they're talking about marco's friend no (laughs) who you remember is axe from book eight i love that so much um it's actually kind of a cute meta reference because Marco's <laughs> like, Axe could tell you about that. Yes, and in that's fact, true. he did. <laughs> um, but then it's this whole thing about like Marco's dad is now working on some military thing. It turns out to be have to do with the Pemelite crystal. And now Marco thinks the Yurks are trying to recruit his dad. So he's trying to push him for information. And his dad's like, Well, you know, I never worked on military stuff because of your mom. And he tells this whole story about how the last couple years of their marriage were like, you know, they were truly, truly happy, and it was just like the best time ever. They didn't have any domestic squabbles anymore. And then one weird night, he woke up and saw Marco's mom sitting straight up in bed, and she basically says, never do any military work, and they won't take you. And uh, Marco's dad is like, that's weird. But, you know, to honor the memory of his wife, he hasn't done any military work, except now maybe it's kind of military. Uh, and Marco realizes the uh, the horrible truth. Yeah. The crazy thing is that he realizes it before his dad even says, and then she warned me about the military. Like, when he starts describing this, like, this perfect time for us, like, we used to fight every now and then when you were younger, like most couples, but then it was if, as if all our problems were gone, settled. And Marco says, I felt cold fingers around my heart. Like, he knows just from that that, like, there is no such thing as a relationship where you don't squabble. Like, that was the yerk being like, I don't want to deal with domestic problems. I'll just, you yeah, know. It's, and it's so easy for Visser 1 to just, you know, push this guy's buttons and, like, yeah. think about the, you know, whatever evil stuff they're up to. It was like we'd achieved some level of perfect peace and perfect love. There is a statement happening about what marriage is like. Mm-hmm. I mean, from a well, couple. Marco's dad was. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I, mean, I think in general that it's a it's a dis- interesting description of how relationships work, and that domestic squabbles are time consuming and energy consuming and emotionally consuming, and that that doesn't mean they're not important. And yeah. to have a yerk come into your brain and take over, and the yerk not be interested in stupid little domestic battles, so it could focus on the deeper goals. I mean, that's a really interesting thing, especially from a couple writing these books together yeah. with a one-year-old child. <laughs> that's <laughs> like, really interesting. I, I read it as a little bit of a darker take. I, I just think that what's gone when you become a controller, it's like all of your individuality, right? So mm-hmm. it's like whatever made Marco's mom a person has been like totally wiped out. And I kind of, I mean, maybe this is just where my imagination goes. I just imagine she's a lot more accommodating. She's like willing to do all the annoying stuff in the relationship, right? She's picking up the slack. Mm -hmm. It's like, she never complains about his late nights anymore, right? right? You could could just really imagine how easy it is Mm -hmm. for someone who hasn't grown up feeling like they need to get anything out of this relationship that's not purely transactional. How do I become the strongest alien on earth, Mm -hmm. right? Like, and it's, it's like so horrible to think that that, it might be so simple to, you know, please this guy. Also imagining Marco's mom watching from within yeah. her own body. Right. How he watching likes the her husband more now. And, yeah. he, and yeah. yeah, to her credit, she still wants to save him. Right? right? Yeah. I know, there's she so has, much one, into she this has memory. one moment where yeah. she can break free of her captor. I think what you're reading into it is very possible. I think there is an alternate possibility where it's like she became very, very good at manipulating him. I mean, she's the top 
general in the entire Yurk invasion. Like, she is good at manipulation. And she's, like, the one with the subtle strategy, unlike Visser Three. Like, it's possible that he was kind of a dupe. Like, it's not like, this is what he always wanted. It's like she managed to convince him that this is what he'd always wanted. Maybe slightly less dark. It's, like, still dark in terms of what their relationship yeah, and we was. And we don't know enough about yeah. who he is. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. He did raise Marco. So there might be some toxic and, right, right, right. happening yeah. there. And it's also, I think, this is truly horrifying, but it's probably a relief to Marco that it's like two years tops. Yeah. Right. It's not that it's not that his whole life yeah. he's never like you know he he knows that there is someone he remembers as his mom who is a real person and it hasn't been an alien the whole yeah. time. And that's the memory he has when he's trying to morph back right. as he's dying, right? It's a much younger version of himself where his mom is like, you're going to grow up to be so cute because Mark is obsessed with cuteness <laughs> in all forms. Um, but it's so that that a little that's bit a real too, memory. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to ask what your take on this scene was, Gray, because you were a little... You weren't keen on the Visser One twist when it came up before, and you were like, I hope Marco will have evolved a little bit. Did this do anything for you, or it's not enough yet? No, he hasn't evolved I don't think he's there yet, yet. no. No. It's part of the plot, and I see how important that's going to be for him as a motivating factor, but also for kind of realizing more of what's happening behind the scenes. But I'm not sold yet. As we've discussed, like I like Marco's voice because it's very amusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he's got he's got a lot of issues. I found it less funny this time, actually. Yeah. There's still a few very funny moments, but there were a lot of moments that weren't really about Marco. It was just sort of a more new yeah. a more neutral narrator than Marco's voice was in book five. I did laugh out loud again. This wasn't Marco saying this, but when Marco has just exploded out of the bird corpse and has fallen and, and Eric is standing over and he's like Marco didn't you used to have more hair <laughs> I <just laughs> lost it right. I also in that scene Marco is it's just such a funny place for his head to go he's embarrassed about being seen in such unattractive clothes by an evil android <laughs> that's like where his head goes he's it like was, I just don't look my best it was really striking that the memory that like got him back into his human form in this time of dire need was his mom telling him he was going to be cute. <laughs> like, we um, wonder why he has issues. Also, part of the, you know, I wish that I were wearing different clothes was because there's a friend uh, who comes running up. Jenny. Jenny. I was really excited about that. Um, Jenny, how do we know you're not an android? <laughs> you don't know. You can't know. Oh, unless no. you can morph something with alternate eyes and see through my holographic Wait, exterior. What if I point like a webcam at you and look at you? Webcam? Like a vampire. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, but don't you think my technology is good enough to anticipate that? I know. And you read these books when you were younger, so you definitely <laughs> would have corrected for that. Okay, but speaking of Jenny, this w- this girl runs up, sees the Andalite bandit mm-hmm. with Eric. Eric says, nothing over here. Mm-hmm. Wait, I thought she Jenny. was the other. I yeah, thought she was the, the other. other uh, chi. chi. She's another chi. Because just before yeah. this, they were like, "There's at least one more." Who Sorry if I accused you being an android. Ever Eric King does. I can't. I mean, you're <laughs> editing this episode, so you're gonna have to decide whether you leave that in if you want to out me. <laughs> so you admit it. I admitted nothing. <laughs> also, I had a problem with the um, narrative leap to being oh it's an android in disguise i know it must be a hologram we just need different eyes to see it i was not there at all and it was like oh, oh yes yeah. of course this plan will work most of their exactly hunches work out yeah is it, is yeah, it just yeah, like yeah. but there's just a hunch but did not seem to also be coming they, from any uh, well they, they mm-hmm. saw that like the his outer appearance like disappear in a blip and then return 
Mm, so that when implied it hologram. The so it was like something that was being projected. It was not real. Also, it helps that they have Axe. But they're also like... Yeah. But, I mean, there's the bit where they rescue Axe because they're like, oh, this message must be coming from, like, an Andalite because, <laughs> we, you know, Cassie's the best at morphing, right? Their hunches just tend to, tend to work out. Yeah, no, okay, that's true. I, once again, have questions about strategy, which is <laughs> what exactly is Eric doing with the infiltrating the sharing? Is he helping? What is he trying to do? I mean, it's nice that he learned about this crystal thing. I guess, yes, he's spying, but I'm There's not sure what he's spying for. It, it doesn't right quite get to this, but you could imagine that he was quickest on the draw to find Marco because he was he's kind of anticipating connecting with the Andalites, hmm. and then, you know, like, maybe that's kind of what he's doing. But, like, why didn't he just say that if that's... What he's doing? <laughs> a lot of questions. I had a couple of, like, language choice things that I thought were really funny. Ooh, yeah. Uh, one of them was Marco saying, you have us by the dot, dot, dot. You have us cold. Yep. That is so clearly the authors being like, this is the language we are familiar with. We are adults. We want to use this language. We can't use this language in this darn kid's book. Okay, we're going to use most of it and then just switch. Sure, you're going to haul. <laughs> exactly, just haul. Yeah. They decide to haul butt out of the uh, the vault. Do they? Yeah. I missed it. That's great. Uh, should we talk about their terrible plan with... Oh, wait. I had my other language thing, which was, it was a rush, as they would have said in my dad's day. <laughs> <laughs> Do people not still say that? They did in the 90s, I guess. I guess they said it in the 70s and not in the 90s, but now I'm familiar with it, despite the fact that I grew up in the 90s. Like... There are a lot of really interesting 90s things in this well, one. What about when Marco talks about the parental units attending the concert? <laughs> I love that. Trying to I love that a lot. And their dockers. God, the parental units. That is not a phrase I've heard in a while. It's great. My brother and I still say that. <laughs> oh, can we say when he's talking about the bands? I hear they are so great live. They kick. <laughs> they do. They kick. <laughs> they really kick they when you hear them live. Stop. While we're talking about the bands... What if Alanis was a control? That's why she doesn't know what ironic means. <laughs> I think that's if she was an Andalite. Wait, but yeah, what would like? What, what if that... Alanis were an Andalite bandit? That would be ironic. <laughs> what if? I don't. It, it, it would fit as far as the song goes. True. True. <laughs> Uh, yeah, should we talk She's about... She's got one hand in her pocket, and the other one is actually a horn from some <laughs> other beast. This is also a great set. Offspring, Nine Inch Nails, and Alanis. Like, in... It's peak 90s. Right. I mean, this 19, is, like, ridiculous town. <laughs> 1996 or 7, right? Yeah. Like... Yeah, this is a, a very small town when they're getting around it, but also it has, like, all these multiple school districts. Mm-hmm. It has this huge concert happening in town. Yeah. So many big tech buildings that they can't find back home, by the way. <laughs> Somehow, at... A concert that is Nine Inch Nails, Alanis Morissette, and Offspring. The people there include displaced deadheads. Well, that's why they're displaced. Yeah. And an awful <laughs> lot of hippies, given that it is the 90s. There's some goths, right? People in black? And oh, yeah. Some goths, black t-shirts. You're right. Yep. Yep. Kids um, in black t-shirts. Yeah, yeah which band are the hippies like... there for? And hardcore punk rockers with pierced everythings. I don't have my everything pierced yet, but... <laughs> Are you gonna have plural everything's pierced? Because that's the real achievement. Also, the creepiness factor of morphing is described as Stephen King meets Anne Rice yes. creepy, which I thought was very funny. Yep, very nineties. Are we gonna update that one? What would it be? It's still Stephen King. Yeah, yeah. What has like creepy bodily horror in it these days? Um, 
uh, Pet Jeff Cemetery. Vandermeer. <laughs> well, that is That's the Stephen King, like the current movie. <laughs> <laughs> I liked that there was specifically an ecology bookstore I have that near the con- like. That is very specific. You can tell that it's the 90s because there are still independent bookstores, and some oh. of them are so specific that they can just be about ecology. Yeah. Also, the kings eat Wheaties. <gasps> I yes, have something they do. to answer for, Jenny. <laughs> Two Wheaties references in these books. That's true, the Wheaties came back. And yet you claim they're not the origin of your family's long Wheaties allegiance. I, you know, I really. It supports the Jenny's and Android theory, too. (laughs) It all comes full circle. Darn it, I was hoping you would notice that. (laughs) I'm going to have to change my identity and assume a new hologram now. Um, There's one other 90s reference I thought was very funny TWA. Yes! Very good. I I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed that so much. Wait, where did this come up? I don't so he, uh, oh, is that Marco an says, yeah. it was an airline, oh, and Marco right. says, TWA, travel with animals. <laughs> and I was like, TWA is not a thing anymore, but that is a great reference. Well done. We got some good perspective on Jake and Cassie's relationship. The fact that, you know, Marco knows that she and Jake are into each other. The only time they'll act that way is when we're about 12 seconds away from doing something insanely dangerous. Then they'll kind of give each other these pathetic sad looks. And then later when <laughs> and then they're, see it. <laughs> they're about 12 seconds away from doing something dangerous and Marco tries to catch Jake's eye. Yep. Jake is instead exchanging glances with Cassie, leaving Marco once again. Love yes. Third and he's, yeah. not, he's totally not aware of racial bias. No, he has no yet. clue I yet. Ca- I, I kind of yeah. like that, that you know, Cassie like totally ships it and Marco's completely yeah. oblivious. That is a really fun attribute of just the structure of these books with the rotating yeah. narrator and stuff, and and with an ensemble cast. Like I'm really enjoying that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like we were saying, like the sometimes the glimpses you get not just of relationships but just of the characters from the inside and outside is so different. Mm-hmm. I liked the description of Cassie. Cassie actually experiences normal human emotions like fear and doubt. I approve of this because I sure experience plenty of fear and doubt myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking about the thing where. Strong fictional men are allowed to be afraid of spiders or snakes or other creepy crawlies like that. Mm-hmm. That's Indiana just sort of Jones. right. Terry Crews' character hates spiders in Brooklyn Nine Nine. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. I did. I also liked in that scene Kay Applegate being like, "I'm going to teach you what the difference between an insect and an arachnid <laughs> is through the form yeah. of Cassie, who knows." everything about animals. I learned about the history of spiders because she said yeah. uh, at one point Marco that. says older than dinosaurs and I was like nuh-uh and then I went and looked it up and yeah huh. Wow. Yeah wow. there were arachnids all the way back in the Devonian and Permian eras and that's Whoa. really interesting and cool <laughs> and they were probably mites but they're also giant spiders and there's a news story this week about how spiders are adapting to higher sea levels and colder waters oh, wow. and it was so terrifying and disgusting and I'm never going in the ocean again but it turns okay. out there are spiders they live in the ocean they're totally going to outlive what? all of us I didn't want to know that yeah. but, <laughs> but so enjoy your next trip to the beach I, going, I was saying going back to the thing where, where men are allowed to be right. I think also I like that she lets Rachel be afraid of that stuff too mm. like Cassie is not but that makes sense because Cassie's like super into all the animals and Cassie's the kind of person who's afraid of a lot of other things in these books but Rachel who is like generally trying to be fearless is like sure I'll morph the spider and then she can't keep a straight face she's like no it's actually horrible and although it's also a way in which Rachel is coded masculinely mm. in that sense like oh, she's not, yeah. not afraid yeah. not afraid of anything except she has her like one human vulnerability <laughs> 
vulnerability of not being into a particular small right. creepy crawly. That's, and we talked before like about like is Marco he's the complainer. So mm, it's yeah. kind of interesting here he seems genuinely frightened of the spider and he's not that just like true. oh bugs are so gross cuz with the ants and stuff before it seemed like they were all horrified by it equally but mm-hmm. he was the one who was willing to say guys let's yeah, never do yeah. ants again. And he, in this one he says again it was the very very worst. I was really glad they adopted your rule of no colony animals. <laughs> it was a good rule. I was thinking there was a point where when they're listening to the story about the Pemelites, and he says, Cassie's crying. I guess I was too. And I was like, oh yeah, so Cassie is for like emotions and crying, what Marco is for complaining, where she'll sort of take the fall for the group. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he'll take the fall on the complaining front. The Cassie and Marco thing was really cute. They have a, a couple of cute moments. That one's one, and then one is when they morph into bats uh, in order to find this crystal thing. <laughs> Let's talk about that. They're, yeah, so they, they morph into bats, uh, adorable, and they echolocate to find this permeate, uh, sorry, Pemolite. I don't know why I can't say this name, this word. You were on the Permian arrows. By the way, if I am a strong man in a movie, my thing is bats. Really? Oh. I hate bats. Interesting. Oh, they creep me out. I what think they're really cool in theory. Just like cannot about, handle the way they move. What about how they grab the air with their wings and push it behind them? I'm and aware when, that they are so cool. And when Marco, he's just a little bat and he's like, I licked my lips with my little bat tongue. It's so cute. <laughs> but they get into her hair. Oh, that's true. The hair. Yeah. No, they don't. Because they can see in the dark. And that's they know true. where you are and they don't want to go in your hair. The density of hair is weird though. So they, they get in trouble oh. with that. What about how their faces are like... A Pekingese dog. Aww. I don't really like Pekingese either. <laughs> <gasps> you might not need to convert Liz to bats. No, it's fine. People can. It's differ. just the way they People move. can differ about bats. They do <laughs> have feet. Right? Why couldn't they hold the crystal with their feet? But they're. It's like the size Ugh. of a grape. Their feet are really small. <laughs> this plan. It was the worst plan. Okay, first of, all, first of all, the obstacle course is also dumb. It's very like. Harry Potter, mm-hmm. first Harry Potter, where it's like, yeah, let's protect this thing, but instead of just putting it in, like, I don't know, a box that only one person can open, we're going to have an elaborate obstacle course that no one could ever get through, except these people who could turn it into bats. <laughs> so the Yerks tried, like you were saying. <laughs> they put this whole elaborate thing together, but what would have defeated the Animorphs' plan? How about putting a baby monitor on the pedestal? <laughs> So you can be like, oh, what's that chirping noise coming from the vault? Better check it out. Maybe better deploy, you know, like, the humans with guns. Yeah, or maybe also put the pressure sensors right next to the thing and not just in, like, a wide strip around it. Also, why don't the pressure sensors go to the To the edge of the room! (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. So the Yerks had a bad plan, but actually it wasn't that bad because it turns out that bats can't navigate the maze with the crystal. You know, in Harry Potter when this happens, don't we later find out that, like, Dumbledore fully intended to have it be that that Harry and his friends were going to be able to work their way through each of the puzzles? Like, there was actually a reason. irresponsible as a supervisor of 11-year-olds. We know this. Like <laughs> Dumbledore are. sucks. Yeah. But oh, it's I like, like one of these things where for like four or five books, you're just, you, 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 where, where you, when it's happening, you're like, okay, yeah, convenient that like the three things they've learned in school or the, <laughs> and the three things they're good at are going to be the things that are guarding the Sorcerer's Stone. And then it turns out that's actually all intentional and part of uh, Dumbledore being a terrible chaperone and steward of children. So wait, who's the Dumbledore of the Animorphs? Business that's what I'm wondering. Who is setting this up such that it is actually <laughs> perfectly designed to be challenging for their skill set, but not like unachievable? Wait, wait, wait. We, we talked about how all the Yerks need to do is set a trap for the Animorphs and lure them there and then capture them. That's what they were trying to do in this one. That's why they had like 20 Horpadir and like dozens of human controllers with guns. They're like, this is it. We are going to bait them and we'll lure them in here. 
Okay. I'm convinced. But, <laughs> but the controller at the end, when Marco's bluffing with, like, the fragility of the crystal, yeah, like, oh, yeah. you have guns, but if you shoot us, the crystal might break and it's worth a lot of money. I mean, the point of the crystal is to shut down all the computers on Earth and accelerate the invasion. <laughs> I don't even That's know true. if we talking about how stupid the Earth is. doesn't make any sense at all. I don't but, even know what they're... Try to get Killing out of it. the Animorphs is just like way better tactically. Because if, if you get rid of yes, the Animorphs, then the, the invasion will succeed no matter what. And if, yet, it's Mr. 3's fear based leadership practices yeah. where it's like, oh, we'll get in trouble with Mr. 3. <laughs> because I was going to say, if the Animorphs are there and escape, you could pretend they weren't there, especially if everyone dies. But if the Hemlock is there, don't shoot them, shoot all of us. <laughs> you fools! <laughs> if the Pemelite crystal gets destroyed, then Visor 3 will know. Also, on the other hand, let's allow it. The Pemelite Crystal is a supercomputer that can true. drop a bomb that controls all of the computers on Earth. It can probably do a lot of other stuff. So maybe in the scope of the Yurks War against the entire universe, it is genuinely way more That's valuable. Possible. Than you know what else it could probably do as a supercomputer is control all of these android computer brains that happen to be hanging out underground in yeah. this town. Well, they yeah. don't know about that yet. And then the Anamorphs. Throw it into the ocean. <laughs> it's just gone. I wouldn't have got again it for you, baby. They give it the to a dog. <laughs> they give it to a dog. Presumably takes it out into the ocean and leaves it. <laughs> or it actually it. just ends up in Jake's trash in like a little baggie. Yeah. <gasps> it's a much better solution. Homer actually. is the Animorphs Dumbledore. <laughs> Ooh. Homer he was to get sprayed by the skunk. I know Homer was there in book nine getting sprayed yeah. by the skunk. Homer mm-hmm. was the first Very dog beginning. that was ever first morphed. morphed. Yeah. I love it. I think this is a great th- solution. He's masterminding everything. It's it's a flawless. All right, of all right. Books. We've got a new we've got a new yeah. headcanon here. I was deeply entertained and also deeply confused by the fact that the sharing is for both children and adults, and oh, they hang out together. Did you together. not know that? No, no. I mean, I remember that kind of being a thing mm-hmm. in the first book that like these kids were hanging out, and then also there was a policeman there. Yeah. But it was not explicit like it is in these books that this is a networking thing for adults who mm-hmm. then like go mm-hmm. golfing together, but also hang out with all these teenagers. It's for who families. wants that? Club? <laughs> no one wants that club. No person also, there wants to be there. They live next to an ocean, so they go on this excursion to a lake. Maybe that's a thing people do. I don't know. No. But Yeah, I grew up near oceans and did not visit a lake for the first time until well into adulthood, and I still am a little bit mystified by them. (laughs) You have an ocean there. Why are you going to a lake? Oh, we forgot the important 90s moment of, like, how do we find him? Let's look him up in the phone book. Yes! Yes! And Cassie goes into her house and gets a phone book and finds all of the kings. She always has, most practical, reasonable ideas. She's very down to her. Very smart. Because she likes the air. I love how often they're like, Oh, come on, we're not in a movie. This is real life. <laughs> That's some of their ideas. I did really like how they spend the first literally like 45% of the book being like, what are these creatures? We have no idea. We're like, the book is called The Android. <laughs> I know. It's like, it'd be so suspenseful if we didn't know. Well, I so, do think sometimes it's like there's a different kind of suspense, the dramatic irony kind of suspense where you're like, we know a thing. We want the characters to find out the thing. One of the characters going to find out the thing. And so that was kind of what this was. But it was yeah. pretty hilarious. What would you have titled the book? Uh, we could we could call it, like, The Immortal. Or, like, <laughs> The Inheritance. Oh, The Essence. The Descendants. Is there an essence? There isn't an essence. I don't know. The dogs. I like <laughs> <laughs> No, it has to be 
one like vague evocative word. I don't, I don't know. Dogs are evocative. They're not. I don't know why. Picture of a spider on the front. <laughs> <laughs> the most ten. The dogs. I don't know why these books aren't just named after the one new morph they get in each book. Right. Last oh. one should have been the skunk. The, you know, this one would have been the spider. Like it, the titles don't make yeah, any damn like, sense. Imagine seeing that in your like scholastic book club catalog, like, being like, "Oh boy, the skunk." And this is why I the didn't read this book. I forgot to mention the one with yeah. When we talked about the title earlier, I forgot to mention that I checked this book out from the library, a physical copy of it, and the library clerk who checked me out looked at the cover and went, "Oh, that's horrible." <laughs> and I said. I know. And he said, that's why I didn't read these books in the 90s. And I said, I know. There are more of us. Did you tell about a podcast? I uh, didn't seem receptive. <laughs> Did anyone else really relate to Marco struggling to write his English essay in this book? No. 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 <laughs> Sorry, Ted. Look at your audience. I thought this whole conversation about, he's, he's talking to Jake about how he's like writing the paper and he can't figure out what his thesis statement is. And then they come up with this dumb that title, was The Use it. of Rhetoric to Obscure a Lack of Content. <laughs> and I remember thinking this was, like, the coolest idea ever <laughs> as, like, a 10-year-old reading these books. I was like, that's brilliant. You could write a whole paper, and it sounds so fancy, <laughs> and the teacher will have to give you credit for it. He gets a B. It was amazing. That's really I thought, I thought it was brilliant. I really like that Jake came up with that idea, and this really shows why he and Marco are best friends. Because mm. they... And you see Jake kind of being willing to go along with Marco's shenanigans. <laughs> yeah. He's not actually always that responsible. He's such he's... a hypocrite. He yelled at Cassie well, so much. Well, he's a lot like Rachel, right? Like, they mm. both kind of have that, like... Cousins. You know, we'll mm. make an exception for ourselves, you know. <laughs> well, go along with your friends. dumb idea. Your idea is obviously dumb, but... Yeah. And it's what we saw in the last book, which was, uh, which was Cassie's book, where she actually says, to Jake, you, you mean like you and Marco egg each, egg other, each other, on. other on? And then we saw that at the beginning of this book, they're egging each other on. And I was like, oh, okay, they yeah, actually do Marco's do that. Marco's a bad influence on Jake. Yeah. And <laughs> Rachel's like a, bad welcomes the bad influence. a bad influence. Sometimes Cassie's a bad influence on or Rachel. Or vice versa. Marco talked about wanting to try jumping out of a plane without a parachute. Mm-hmm. He did that in Megamorphs 1. It, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't fun. I don't know why he didn't remember he that. He did it in the last book. <laughs> oh, you know what just occurred to me? You know, all this this hype about, oh yeah, it's a supercomputer, better than all the other computers, will we'll control all the computers in the world. This was written in 1997. Uh-huh. They were worried about Y2K. Oh. That's true. That's it was tapping so, into Y2K yeah. fears. Were we? I guess we were already worried yes. about Y2K. Yes. I mean, yeah. programmers have been worried about it since the <laughs> 80s, but I think definitely by the late 90s it was yeah. a like, thing that was coming yeah. up. And yeah. Because programmers were like, oh, we did this thing that we... Oops, we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Not bad. All right. Did anyone else think it was interesting that they don't consider recruiting Marco's dad, even though they're really, really sure that he's not a controller at this point? Because they know that oh. Tom's going after him. Yeah, you know, I feel like they, if they really wanted to, they could bring a bunch of other, like, they could make sure that other people are controllers, they could tail them for, like, three days, they could hold them in the woods for three days, even. They could smell um, them. Yeah. <laughs> that hasn't come up in a few books. Yeah, but I feel like that's not foolproof. I remain convinced. But I think, I don't know, there is power to keeping, like, this functional team together. Although there would also be a lot of benefit to having Marco not get in trouble for, you know, being out late. But, like, yeah. I feel like he would really throw off their dynamic. What do you think about the, um, the cheese long experiences with history? Building the pyramids and also seeing Hamlet. <laughs> they were there for everything significant because they knew which things would be significant. It's very convenient. A thing that I found very interesting about the pyramids thing was, one, 
although we don't know this yet in the podcast, mm-hmm. in the order in which we are recording them, the pyramids have other significance to this insane sci-fi premise. Yeah. And two, that he was a slave. Yeah. Which is a very unusual thing in time travel sci-fi. Usually you get to be a lord or at least you get to... The the special advisor to the pharaoh. Yeah, or you get to make out with the lords or whatever the different (laughs) premises. But in this one he was a slave, which was really interesting. Do you think that she have gender? Well, they have gendered names. Yeah. I mean, they're passing as humans, so that would be a choice. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. So the the thing that you brought up, it's part of their like non-imperialist, non-interfering thing, right? <laughs> so like, it's part of their code that they can't kind of like mess with humanity. Mm-hmm. They have to let let things play out. Yeah. So they sort of have the prime directive, like more directly than the version that the Andalites mm-hmm. have. Right. And because we had recently discussed this, I did not know what a pemolite crystal would look like, and I kind of thought it might be like <laughs> and then it wasn't. No. It was, in fact, the size. We're really accumulating the MacGuffins here. Yeah. yeah. There was Very one other powerful. detail that I really liked, which was when they're in the forest for the first time, Tobias is like, watch out, there are kids playing soldier nearby. Ooh, interesting choice. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a really good point. Yeah. And they're the actual child soldiers. Yeah. Mm. It's like that great scene in The Giver where they're like playing at war and Jonas just saw the war memory oh. and is like, this is the worst thing that could ever happen. Mm-hmm. So there was one other thing, which was that Marco, he kind of is like struggling with these violent, he has these violent urges, right? And then he's, mm-hmm. you know, he realizes how bad that is at the end when he sees the truth horror of violence or whatever but it was a little like underwritten but there was one moment that I found kind of disturbing which is when the secret is found out and he's, he doesn't know that he can trust Eric yet oh, he yeah. thinks for a moment oh what do I have the energy to remorph into something so that I can dot 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 and he's basically oh. like I'm just gonna kill I'm gonna kill this guy right which is yeah. um, a pretty dark place for him to go right away not surprising though no uh, also grow this is yet another time when there is a battle in which he has intestines spilling out of him in oh, a yeah. children's book and a blade goes into his heart I, his he heart has to be started yeah he dies <laughs> yes he dies yeah he super dies yeah and but he comes back uh eric restarts his heart and then he is that a out. thing well, well he, he's electric Right, but it's not that his heart... Like, but the problem is that he got stabbed in the heart, not that his heart stopped. <laughs> well, he was, like, losing consciousness at this point. The blade might not have gone also, directly he into his heart. What other horrible thing? Axe's arm got ripped off and then reattached by Eric? Yeah. That's, like, yikes. Yeah. Well, so arms barely do anything anyway, right? They're, like, little floppy arms. <laughs> it's true, they're really weak. They're, like, T-Rex Okay, T-Rex but you know what? How many body parts would you like to lose? <laughs> and Axe will have a scar. Will he? We're not really sure. Let's look at a picture. This is an Andalite. Oh, cool. Oh, that's... All right, well... I think they explained their reasoning with the Andalites in this book, because when Axe appears, gracefully jumping over a log, Marco's like, you'd imagine an alien looking just kind of like a human with some makeup on, but Axe was, like, really, really weird. Like, see what we did here? This is a really (laughs) weird alien. So he has a human head and torso, mostly, and then just, like, a horse body. This is nothing that could ever be extrapolated. Wait, also, we haven't talked about what the Pemelites look like. They look like Goofy. <gasps> oh no! I hope I didn't just ruin the Pemelites for you, but that's definitely <laughs> the most horrifying thing that's ever happened. They're goofy! So is Goofy the one surviving Pemelite? Oh my god. Whoa. Wait, the G 
went into Hollywood and created Goofy. <laughs> they probably did. They have all sorts of careers. Who Goofy? We could break well, this wide open. Well, you know them already, Jenny. But also, I'm sorry, I'm not at liberty to say. <laughs> the, the nice thing about that is that, you know, Goofy has a pet dog. Oh, whoa! It's true. Okay, so, so again, the premise checks it. out. Yeah. Wow. Sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. I take it all back. You're wrong. Wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's incredible. Wow. It's beautiful. I'm gonna cry again. <laughs> uh, so should we talk about book eleven, The Forgotten? Okay, let's do that. I'm so excited. I have not the forgotten this book. <laughs> <laughs> I am also excited. Can I say while we're speaking of memories, I have a really clear memory of that room. With the Pemolite crystal in the middle and all of the strings. Like, for some reason, that really mm. stuck with me. Yeah, because it's the same thing that appears in so many other books and movies <laughs> as, like, the magical or important thing in the heist is going to be in the dark room with all of uh-huh. the strands of whatever. With the bats. But I think I may have read... This may have been the, the, like, first one? the trope creator for me. Mm. Like, oh, definitely not for sure me, I yeah. I, I did not have a lot of sci-fi exposure before I this series. But it's the sort of the, thing um, that gets mimicked in lots of cartoons. Well, yeah. they're just imitating the animals. Well, <laughs> the Pemolite world also reminds me of the nature in the Lorax, the oh. like truffula trees, the pink. Although they were steel wool, it's pretty different. Quick question about that: Is it a hologram? Is it what? what where? Oh, it, yes, oh, it's a hologram. It's, well, it's yeah. like it's like a uh, Elmist tech, right? It's that same kind of like <laughs> let's travel through planet Earth. You know, like they, they they're like really powerful. No, but it's clearly. I mean, they have like hologram generators. Like that's yeah, what they but, do. So. Oh, the underground kennel. Yeah. No, no. The, How uh, do they get there? Oh, the underground kennel or the world? The Pemolite world? No, the I guess... The underground kennel is real. Right, but the, it, it's real, but it looks like the Andalite, or it looks like the Pemolite Well, world. I think they built it to be like the Pemolite Hole world, but then they then Eric showed them a hologram of history, like his no, memories. Yeah, not the history yeah. part. The one oh. they're in there and there's the two sons and the whatever. It's a hologram that the dogs are just living in? No, no I the think dogs it's are real. Living in real Earth. Like, they just put That's a light not... in the ceiling. To make it look like they've got two sons. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not try to reason these books. Um, okay, uh, so Animorphs, uh, the next one is called The Forgotten. It is a Jake book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Jake is morphing into um, like cheetah or leopard, some sort of spotted large cat, which I'm very excited about. I would like to once again reiterate that he has a terrible 90s bowl cut and he looks <laughs> very solid and serious. In this Does he look like he's about 5'2"? Yes. <laughs> okay. He actually looks like he's exactly 5'2". He's Whoa. just leaning forward a little bit. Oh, okay. Uh, nothing is what it seems. There's a little huh. text on this. All right, so The Forgotten. This is going to be about the Yerks who were um, left behind when the Kendrona was destroyed. Oh. And they have somehow managed to survive anyway. This is a terrible premise. And they've somehow managed to survive anyway, and they formed their own little cohort of Yerks that have been forgotten by the other Yerks. Whoa. And uh, the Animorphs are going to find them and team up with them, maybe. Maybe they're unhappy, like that one yeah. Yerk was. Yeah, Eslin. Yeah. Eslin. And they're very unhappy, so they're going to team up with the Animorphs and, uh, and and work with them to take down the Yerks. Okay. okay. This is very exciting. I can't... So- Given all that, uh-huh. what is a Sario rip? <laughs> okay. What an intriguing question, Ted. Sario. I, of course, have no idea. Rip. Yes. Two words? Yeah. Yes. How do you spell it? S A R I O, rip. Can you use it in a sentence? No. Oh, okay. um, yes, the sentence is The Forgotten has a Sario rip in it. 
<laughs> Good sentence. Ooh. Um, okay. Uh, it's going to be a hole into Z space, and uh, they can just throw things in there and like leave them in Z space for a little while, <laughs> forget about them. As a it subspace were. pocket. Yeah, okay. and then bring them back. Anti pocket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Good. Oh. Well, I'm really excited to read this book. I, so let's do it next time. Morphology: The Forgotten. If you want to find us, we are at anamorphology.com and at anamorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Animorphs ebooks on our website. We got so many retumbles. <laughs>